Thank you, Pat. Thank you, Papa Mike. Can we thank our worship team as well? You know, after their first set during first service, I came up on stage and I was just blown away. And not that I was at this time. They're, man, I, I'm here and I'm thinking about the words of those songs. And we talk about how we do our absolute best to be intentional about our worship music and what's communicated there in a narrative taking place throughout the service and that it would encompass the message. And they did such an incredible job with that today. And I'm just so grateful for all those people and the time that they spend doing that. Well, I hope that you're having a great week and that you've survived the cold and the wind and the rain. It led up just in time for our little family. We celebrated our middle child's fourth birthday yesterday. There's a quick little picture of us in our greatest showman-themed attire. Titus is the guy on the bottom left, and I know he looks small, but he's four years old, and I love seeing he and his brothers, especially him and Thadden, sing the greatest showman songs while little Truett just one runs around screaming, uh, trying to keep up with them, so that's that. If you're a guest with us this morning, we like to welcome you and thank you for giving us a portion of your weekend. My name is Jed, and it's a privilege to get to serve as one of our pastors on staff. This morning, we're continuing a series that's been called Devoted, which has been a collection of messages where we are looking at God's wholehearted devotion to us and how we subsequently can live more devotedly to Him. And each and every single week, beginning from week one up until now, Britt and myself have used this word formula that He's given us, and it is devotion equals heart plus commitment. It's your first fill in the blanks there. And what's being communicated here is that devotion in its truest sense is a fusion of not just our feelings, but our feelings combined with our actions as well. And so it's not helpful to try and separate those two things, but we want to see them come together insofar as our relationship with God and things pertaining to that. And so every week we've traveled with that definition. This morning, I'd like to begin with a question that will set us forward on our journey. And the question is this, how can we devote ourselves to Scripture? How can we devote ourselves to the Word and the words of God, to Scripture, to our Bibles? Because it'd be really easy for us to say, I have feelings towards this, I have belief about this, and yet on the other end, still not commit much time to reading it. And then there are those of us that could say, you know what, I don't really have any feelings about this insofar as truth, but because I'm searching for it, I'm actually reading through it strenuously. And I don't know where you are, but I would imagine that you have thoughts about what this is, and perhaps you've attempted at some point in your life to approach it. Maybe you have a regular habit and rhythm. I don't know where you are, but that's what we're talking about this morning. And so we're going to begin today by visiting sunrisechurch.org. If you were to go there, you could see the About section. If you were to click that a few bars down, you would see our foundational beliefs. And our first foundational belief has to do with Scripture. And you would find this on our website. It says, We believe the Bible is inspired by God and is both trustworthy and authoritative. We believe it is our responsibility to study the entire Bible and submit to all its teachings. And then immediately next to that, you will see a citation of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16-17. 
through 17, and it says this, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. And that's from the NRSV, which is I tend to study and read out of. When I was a kid and we memorized that, we learned it to be the Word of God is, oops, no, that's Hebrews chapter 4, excuse me. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so the man of God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. And that's how we memorized that as a kid. But here is what I think to be the problem for many of us. We can see that statement, we can see that scripture, but we want to be devoted to it, but we feel largely disconnected to its story. We want to be devoted to scripture, but we feel in 2019 largely disconnected to its story. Many of us would look at this as an ancient book or an ancient library of 66 books authored over 1,500 or so years by a multitude of authors wondering how it has anything to do with our world today. Or I could stand before you today or sit down and talk about how the Bible is the unfolding narrative of God's redemption for this world and His self-disclosure, His revelation and humanity's subsequent response and rejection of his revelation articulated through the lives and the stories of human beings most prominently in the history of the nation of Israel and in the rejection it would culminate to God breaking into history his divine initiative what we know is the incarnation where the word becomes flesh Jesus Christ would dwell among us and after three years of public ministry in the region of Galilee, where he stirs religious and political figures to wonder what he is up to, he is publicly executed by the Roman government. And at his execution, it would cause the disciples who've been walking with him for three years to be incredibly disappointed that this person whom they believe to be more than a teacher, but the Messiah, the King of Israel, who is promised, had failed. But three days later, out of the tomb, what we just sang about, his resurrection proves that his sacrificial death is the atoning work for the sins of mankind. And that would spur the greatest movement in human history, that a, a group of previously disappointed disciples would go and spread the gospel message of the kingdom, baptizing and teaching all to obey what Jesus himself had instituted for them which would then make its way into groups of people who are now called followers of the way, this Jesus movement. We talked about them a few weeks ago, trying to figure out what it means to do life together with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so they would have these churches, and then we would get these letters written to them about how God's imputed righteousness to us and being saved by his grace through faith would enable us to participate in this ministry of reconciliation and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit would do something in us that would produce fruit all around so that there would be healing and reconciliation, peace, wholeness brought to all around us until his return. I could say that's what this is about. And I could tell you that's the story. 
And I could walk off the stage and hope that you were compelled by that and hope that I was compelled by that. But it's not so simple, is it? We can hear that and say that. But you and I all come from unique backgrounds with stories that dictate how we feel towards that narrative and what is found here. And so this morning, you'll see in your fill-in-the-blank, it says this, instead of toward a solution, instead of me just telling you how you can be devoted more to Scripture and fixing it for you, I'd hope over the course of this message to take you towards a Savior and Lord. My hope and prayer this morning is that the Holy Spirit would do the unexpected, that He would surprise us, and He would perhaps catalyze something in you that would cause you to more deeply appreciate not just this, but who it is ultimately about. So the manner in which I'm going to do that today came after hours of prayer and thought and counsel. I spoke to Britt, I spoke to my wife Mallory, I spoke to other staff members and then friends outside of this place because I wasn't sure about how I should approach this topic and whether or not I would go and do it with typical exposition of the text before I moved into my hermeneutic, or if I would possibly try and explain why me as a human being, I'm still devoted to this. So Brit advised me and Mal advised me, and I decided that this morning I'd do something that I had never done publicly in fullness until first service, actually. It's a little surprising, but I've shared bits and pieces of my story over the last 11 years of being able to be in ministry, but I have never more fully articulated my testimony. And so this morning, I'm going to cram in as much detail as I can. There's a lot in first service. I just, I, I intended to say it, but there was enough time, so I didn't say it. I'm going to do my very best to share my story in hopes of elevating the one who this is ultimately about. We okay with that? Yeah. All right. So here we go. My earliest memory, I was two years old, and it was my second birthday, and I played with a yellow truck, and that yellow truck now belongs to my kids, and a few weeks ago, I found that yellow truck broken, and that's that. That's just my earliest memory. So uh, <laughs> what I remember most about childhood, however, was being in my room and struggling to fall asleep. And I struggled to fall asleep because I grew up in this great Christian home, and my parents took us to church every weekend, and so we obviously talked about heaven in Sunday school. Uh, my little boys, they talk about heaven, and they have all these questions, and I'm trying to figure out how to help them conceive of that. I just tell them it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus making everything new. That's, that's all I can understand about heaven. Um, and so I would lay down in bed, and I'd start thinking about eternity. Have you ever tried to think about eternity just nonstop? Yeah, it does a number on your brain. And my mom told the story to me about how she loved to, to stand by my door and listen to me try and sing myself to sleep. What she didn't realize is I was trying to sing myself to sleep because I was essentially having an existential crisis. And I didn't know how I was supposed to sing for eternity because that's how heaven was described to me. You just sing to God forever. And that sounded miserable. I mean, I just couldn't imagine. Thankfully, in Revelation, it says they actually stop singing and something else happens. So anyways, just so you know. Um, so that was my earliest memory of thinking about eternal life in this life as it is. 
And then a few years later, I was given my first taste of having to deal with death and someone moving into eternity and our finitude as human beings. My mom's parents immigrated from the Philippines, and they lived with us. So there was Papa Abe and Mama Floor. Papa Abe was a devout Catholic man. He would stay up through the night and read his Bible and pray through the rosary. I mean, he loved the Lord, and he loved spending time with me, teaching me how to draw. So outside of my dad, there was Papa Abe, who would teach me how to use my pencil in the hallway, that Jesus on Jesus drawing that I did last year. That's still in the style that Papa Abe taught me, just that loose, you know, have a good time with your pencil deal. Well, when I think was five or six, Pop Abe had a heart attack, and I drew him this card that was going to be delivered to him, and I don't know why, I drew a picture of a dog, and I remember asking my mom to put inside the card, Papa Abe, I love you, and I'm praying for you, I hope God makes you better, and uh, I never saw Pop Abe after that again until we were at his memorial, I didn't get to see him at the hospital, he ended up passing away, and that was my first glimpse and taste of death. And I remember telling my mom I felt so guilty because I wrestled with him too hard, and I thought I was the reason why he passed away. Typical kid stuff, right? So my life goes on, and it's not the first time I share that story in second service, but if I were to talk about my testimony, typically I'd say I grew up, everything was pretty easy, I was good at everything, so I was really cocky, and when I told my mom I wanted to be a pastor, she said, you're too cocky to be a pastor, and so I went to Bible college, and I became a pastor, and God works through that after my mom's passing in high school, and now here I am, and that would be my testimony. But here's the other stories that I haven't shared along the way. When I was in the fourth grade, I went to this place called Featherstone Christian Camp, and we went there for the week, and I didn't want to go because my dad's mom, Nanai, was sick. So my dad's parents, we call them Nanai and Tatai, which means mom and dad in Tagalog. And Nanai was sick, and she wasn't doing well, and I remember telling my parents, I don't want to go because something might happen to Nanai this week. Well, we ended up going, and of course, I had a wonderful time at camp, right? We're singing all these worship songs. We have marshmallow fights. We're singing Baby Shark, do, 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 all this good stuff. But unbeknownst to us, while we were gone at camp, my nanai had passed away. And we found out because instead of being dropped off at the church, the church bus, which, again, you assume to be dropped off at church, didn't drop us off there. It dropped us off at Nana and Tata's house. And when we entered into the living room, we were told that Nanai had passed away. And I look back on that, and I just think that had to be the most terrible way to find out about a grandparent passing, because from that point on, I just could not disassociate God and worshiping God with him failing to heal my grandma. That's how I interpreted that as a little kid. Well, within the next year or two, things would get more interesting for us. Tatai was now a widower, and one night I asked my dad if I could go and watch a baseball game with him. And, you know, Tatai, I, I've told stories about him, I think, before. He was the one with the really yoked biceps. He'd have us pinch his skin, and we couldn't. And then Nanai, she was the one that slipped me Werther's during communion, so I had something to suck on. So those are, these are those two. And, uh, so I asked my dad if we can go 
watch, if I could go watch a baseball game with Tata. He, Tata was a great athlete, apparently he coached baseball in the Philippines or something like that. And he loved the Padres. And thank God when Tata was alive, the Padres weren't as terrible as they are right now because <laughs> it's just a shame. So <clears throat> we go over to Tata's house. My dad parks the car and I walk up to the front door and I ring the doorbell and Tata comes up to the window and he says, hey, my boy, uh, but in Tagalog, I'll be there in a sec. And that second between the, the window and the door, which is only a matter of three or so feet, felt like an eternity. And so I, I ran back to my dad at the car and I said, hey, dad, Tata has an answer to the door. Um, will you, will we go check? So we, we walked around the house and I can remember he, it was in this direction, staring through that, that, that door, that screen door, and seeing my grandfather. He had fallen and bludgeoned his head on the doorknob. And at that point, my dad directed me to, to run down the road to my aunt's house. And, and I was pretty fast as a kid, but I had never run that fast in my life. I can still to this day feel my feet hitting the concrete. And I remember begging God, please, don't let this be the way. And getting to my aunt's house and getting the keys and spring back and opening up the door and my dad moving my grandfather to the living room. And I remember looking up at that yellow sticky note by the phone with Nanai's handwriting. It had their address, and I made my very first 911 call, and the dispatcher was trying to get me to be calm, and I remember relating to my dad directions for how he would do chest compressions on his father. My dad's right here. You know, I've, I've never talked about this publicly. Dad, we've never talked about this. Paramedics show up. They go inside. I'm waiting outside, and I'm just freaking out because I feel like it's my fault. If I hadn't gone to go watch that baseball game with Tata, he wouldn't be bludgeoned at the door. And I remember the paramedic, one of them, coming outside in the garage and folding up the stretcher. And that's when I knew that he was gone. The second time in my life I can remember feeling not just anger towards God, but deep anger at myself. You know, to this day, I have never spoken to any of my family members, ever, none of them, except for Mallory, about the guilt that I feel about going to watch a baseball game. I know it's irrational. I know it's not my fault. But I can't help but think that to be the case. You know, God is faithful, and he, he took care of me and walked us through that. The next year, I went back to Featherstone Christian Camp. There's a kid named Nick, a college student. He presented the gospel fireside. It was just a beautiful narration of the passion of the Christ. A few years before the movie, I mean, that movie had nothing on Nick's storytelling. That college kid was amazing. I walked away, and underneath that starry night expanse, I remember telling God, I promise, I promise, if you take me as I am, I'll go into ministry for the rest of my life. What a terrible promise to make as a 12-year-old kid, right? So this is where the story kind of takes shape like I'm accustomed to sharing it. I went home from that camp, got baptized, and I told my mom, Mom, I want to be a pastor when I grow up. And her first words, I mean, without hesitation, she said, you're too cocky to be a pastor. And I'm like, okay. And she was right. <laughs> she was real right. 
and the way I've described it is that over the next few years, the, the humbling and, and the breaking would begin. My eighth grade year, my mom got diagnosed with uh, stage four liver cancer. And man, by, by the end of my freshman year, uh, she was gone. You know, I grew up, like I said, with parents who loved us and loved the Lord, but we didn't, our, we didn't talk too much about faith in our home. I know my parents loved Jesus. I saw in their lives, we were at church. It was basically our second home. I watched my mom and dad do quiet time, but it was difficult for us to communicate about faith in the home. Uh, so one of the things that I appreciate about the last few months of my mom's life is that she started talking to me about the Bible more. And so on the day of her passing, my dad and I, we were going to get her a new bed, and I think my aunt or something called us up and said, hey, uh, things aren't looking good. Uh, you need to, to hurry back. And so it was a really long drive, I think 40 minutes. Just this whole time I'm thinking, like, here it is. And we get back into the home, and we go upstairs in my parents' master bedroom. My mom is in a comatose state, and they say May, June, and Jed are here. And we watch her really just this emaciated, 90-pound, jaundiced, frail woman just slip away. And in that moment, I grabbed her Bible that we had been reading together, and I went immediately to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. And uh, with tears in my eyes, I, I tried as boldly as I could to read through the words of that passage of Scripture. And it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us new birth through a living hope and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are being shielded by the power of God until salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in all praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with a glorious and inexpressible joy, for you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I closed up that Bible. I pushed it to the side. And I didn't really read much of my Bible for the rest of my high school. There's another thing I never shared, and I didn't get this out in first service because I had too many tears at the time. I felt guilt for the past of my mom because just a few days prior, I mean, I just hated seeing her like this in this hospice state. And I remember praying for God to just take her life. But man, the very next day after she passed, I remember just sitting in my room going, why did I pray for that? I'd kill to have just a moment with her again. And the rest of high school was me learning what depression and anxiety and suicide ideation were. My room was downstairs, uh, away from everyone else in the house, and I don't know how my dad and my sisters were grieving. I'm sure they were destroyed, but it was difficult for us to acknowledge it and talk about it. And so here I was in my room, away from them in this massive house, and every single night I'd come home from school, and I would just cry. I would just cry. I told my varsity football and basketball coaches I was done with sports. I wasn't going to play anymore. They tried to convince me, but I wouldn't. I didn't want to draw. I didn't want to do anything. I did not want to leave my room, but I was trying to be this strong person and project to the world that I was still okay. 
And in that bedroom, I learned about anxiety and fetal position panic attacks and hyperventilation and watching trauma over and over in your mind. I had experienced disassociation in the brain. It's where I learned how to hear voices. I mean, I, I, man, it was gnarly. It was gnarly. And I would go down sometimes in the evening. My dad didn't know that I did this. I would drive my mom's car that I'd inherited. I'd take it down to Coronado Beach after I wasn't supposed to be there. After the beach had been closed, I'd park my car in the community, and I would just walk with tears towards the edge of the water. And I'd take fistfuls of sand, and I'd throw them at the sky. I'd say, how dare you? And I'd scream expletive after expletive at God. How dare you? I promised that I would give you my life and look at what you've done to me. And all the while, no one knew. Because I had it all together, right? Graduated with a 4.3. I was our homecoming king, big man on campus. I was going to Bible college, keeping my promise. And I met Mallory, beautiful 21-year-old, and I was 19. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> Come on, preach now. And thank God for Mal because she just she started to understand things about me that no one else could understand. And she had lost her father to cancer when she was a teenage girl. We actually grew up like 20 minutes apart in San Diego and realized that we were kind of living parallel lives. Like God was protecting us and, and keeping us safe. And uh, so we started dating. And I'm cruising through school. And this is when the Bible became become like a textbook for me. If I were to go back and understand what was going on in my brain, I think after all that trauma of childhood and adolescence, it was easy for me to separate myself from this as the Word of God living and active and for it to become a textbook. And I, I was pretty smart. And so my sophomore year, I won the highest award for biblical exegesis as I used that target text of 1 Peter, actually. And at that point in time, I thought, you know what? If I'm just going to fake it for the rest of my life, I might as well show off how smart I am. And so I intended to be either a worship pastor or a high school pastor. And I would get my master's and my Ph.D. And then it was my goal to become the foremost scholar on Petrine literature. That's what I wanted to do with my life. Because I could hide away and I could write books and uh, things would look like I'd faithfully serve Jesus. But uh, it wasn't so simple. Because I'm working at this mega church. And I'm leading worship in front of 7,000 people, and I'd walk away, and I'd sit up in the bleachers next to Mal. And as they were doing announcements or the pastor was preaching, I mean, my heart was so far from God. I was so prideful. I would play a laugh track in my head. I'd play a laugh track because I listened to pastors and teachers taking things out of context because I thought I was so much smarter than them. And I would look around at this room filled with thousands of people just wondering how they could be so disillusioned, how they could actually believe in this God. That's where I was. And, and I was married at that point, the, the final bit of, of college. And, and over the, a period of eight or so months, I mean, I don't know how Mallory did it. But I would come home and I would just share with her how all this was 
BS, how none of this was real, how there's no way that God was in this. And, and she would just listen. And she'd pray for me. And she wouldn't condemn me. Just in grace, she would listen. I'm sure I was freaking her out. Like, what in the world had she done marrying this nut job who was trying to leave ministry and then maybe go make it in the business world? Thank God for now. There was one day where I'm sitting in my office by myself. And again, over this eight or so months of this deconstructing this massive face crisis where I couldn't intellectually reconcile things, but again, I was really making sense of stuff or not making sense of stuff because of my trauma. I would go on once or twice a week and I would visit religious deconversion boards. And I would read stories of people who had left faith, not just Christian faith, and I would sit and read and feel like, oh, they get it. Like, they get me. Someone understands me. But one day, I was reading in my office, and I closed up my MacBook, and I just kind of sat there. And I don't know. I mean, this is a miraculous work of God. He just reminded me that everything that I had in life, in the most literal sense, like, my hands on the chair I was sitting at, my hands on the desk, that if it were not even just for the idea of Jesus and the resurrection, just the idea, not whether it was true or not, just the idea had made for this moment, me sitting this office on that chair at that desk in that building surrounded by these people who, again, this movement over 2,000 years old, was it just an idea? Or did something actually happen? I remember thinking back to being 12 years old and that promise I made to God in the sky, that covenant of sorts with him telling him that I promised to go into ministry for the rest of my life. And I realized in that moment I could give up on that. I could fake it. Or I could see if there was something real. I thought about how easy it is to give up on life and how I could give up on so much stuff. And I don't know why, but I put my hand right here and I just started listening and feeling this muscle in my chest. And it's the work of God. Because in that moment, I recommitted my life to, at that time, I didn't have it all figured out, but I said, until this muscle in my chest stops beating, I'm going to, at the very least, pursue and engage with this idea. And that's where things really started to change for me. It, it wasn't an intellectual pursuit anymore. It was a confession of so much pent-up pride and anger. And now when I look back on it, I, I can say this for a fact. I, I was very messed up in thinking I was going to invite God along to my journey and promise Him stuff. No, 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 no. This is the other way around. He invited me to be a part of His. And it's by the grace and mercy of God that I can be here today because it's his promise of faithfulness. So I don't know where you are. And I don't know how you think about God or how you think about this, but I'm here to, to let you know here's a person who carries the pastor or the title of pastor. And that's my messed up story. So where do we go from there? How do we get from that to this? I'm so grateful we ended up at Sunridge Community Church. 
uh, an old professor, John Webb, called me to say, hey, there's a church out in Temecula. Would you be interested in leaving your Linda to do that? And I said, I love you, Dr. Webb, but I'm never moving to Temecula. <laughs> and uh, Mallory said, hey, babe, why don't you just pray on that and look at the role description? This was a few years removed from that script crisis, so don't worry. It wasn't like, boom, I'm, I'm ready to... No, you didn't get me like that. It was several years later, okay? <laughs> so uh, I, I opened up this Word document, and the mission statement said, helping people find and follow Jesus. And, oh, it just got me. Because at that point in time, God had really been discipling me again. I, I was grown. I was spending time in the Word. It wasn't just a textbook anymore. I was convicted about the ministry of reconciliation and the opportunity to steward my life. And how I get it, I get one chance to do this one life this one way, and I was going to make the absolute best of it. And uh, we ended up here, Sunridge Community Church. And so I said that we're toward a solution, or not a solution, excuse me, but a Savior and Lord, right? How oh, I can't give you the answers, and I can't say, here's my story, and there's yours, boom, boom, God's taking care of it, go read your Bible, God bless you. No, no, it, it's so much more than that. So... I want to talk about in our last 10 or so minutes about how that translates to my and our devotion to the Word of God. You guys okay with that? So here's your first fill in the blank there. When I'm devoted to Scripture, my heart is committed to constantly re-engaging with Christ. Now it's really important that I use Christ language here. See, our mission is to help people find and follow Jesus, but what I'm convinced of and my prayer is that when we engage with the teachings of Jesus and the, the word about the word becoming flesh, at some point in time, we would have really a miraculous encounter with Christ. And when we say Christ assumes that God has kept his promise. Because when we say Jesus the Christ or Christ Jesus, Jesus the Messiah, what is implied there, what's being stated is that God is so faithful to his promises and his plans of redemption. And so when I look at scripture, I want to be engaged with how it culminates and is about Christ. See, it's, it's nice as a human being, I can absolutely feel and see others in these pages who can empathize with my story. I, I really appreciate the rawness and the humanity that I see here. I think about Elijah asking God to take his life. I think about Jeremiah screaming, cursed be the day that I was born. I think about Asaph saying, my tears have been my food. I think about Peter's denial. I think about all of these things. Naomi weeping, Job weeping over the loss of family members. I mean, there are people, countless humans in these pages who have stories of pain and suffering, but it's not just about them, and it's not just about me relating to them or them relating to me. It's about something bigger than that. It's about the ministry of reconciliation pushing through all that God's redemptive work in humanity, taking and searching after a broken people and bringing them to himself. And so when I read scripture, I don't just want to read stories and go, man, I'm so glad someone can relate to me. Yes, I come to it that way, but with hopes for more. And, it ho and it's hopes that I would be re-engaged with Christ, the risen Christ. You see, it's really important to delineate that I don't worship my Bible. And Jesus himself, in the Bible, of course, has an accounting of where we see that it's important to not worship this. In John chapter 5, speaking to the religious elites of the Pharisees of that day, Jesus says in verse 39, as it's recorded, 
You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that testify on my behalf, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. When I read scripture, I don't want to come to this as just a textbook or a diary or whatever I can make it out to be as a human being. I want to engage with Christ. So much so that when I put this aside, because I don't spend all day reading this, and I know you don't either, but when we put this aside, our lives would actually be impacted by the one who this is about. Does that make sense? Here's the second step then. When I am devoted to Scripture, my heart is committed to continually being reconstructed. What I'm saying is this. It is so easy for me to bring my subjectivity and my bias and my lens and my story to this. And that's just normal. It's impossible to not do that. But I want to try and get away from projecting onto Scripture. So that's why I want to study it faithfully and contextually. But part of what happens when I read it looking to engage with Christ is it does become something to me. And I slipped earlier when I started speaking about Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. This is how I memorized the kid. I think it's different on the screens. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces and penetrates, dividing soul from spirit, joint from marrow, and judging the secret thoughts and intentions of the heart. And I think first service, I, this one says two-edged sword. That's okay. Close enough. What happened? That was funny, right? I heard like one chuckle. Okay. When I come to Scripture, when I come to the Bible, I approach it with the hopes and the belief that it will ruin me. That I don't just get to come to it and say, all right, I believe this, so let me find some." Yep, that's pretty close. Good enough. It's got to ruin me and deconstruct me, and then the Holy Spirit begins to reconstruct and reframe and renew my mind, and that's how... It ought to work if we don't change and if our thoughts and our mind and our perspective and our theology isn't being challenged and grown, then we probably have tradition and not necessarily truth. One of the things I love about being a part of an independent, non-denominational church is that it assumes, a non-denominational church, and Bible calls the joke was it's the denomination of non-denomination, but a non-denominational church, the beauty of that is it affirms that we are going to have so many people of different faiths and Christian backgrounds. So there could be Lutherans and Baptists and Catholics and Wesleyan. I mean, we could run the scope, but in a non-denominational church, what you are saying, if you're a part of this local body, is my particular faith, tradition, denominationally, I will not impose and say that is the way. Because really here what we have is an essentials unity. So Jesus is it. In essentials, unity, right? Maybe you've heard this. In non-essentials, freedom, but in all things, charity or love. That's the hallmark of this movement that allows us to be a non-denominational church. And so here is what I'd move to next. When we, plural, we are devoted to Scripture, our hearts are committed to humbly returning to one another for dialogue and discipleship. I've said this before. I don't disciple anybody. I don't disciple anybody because I believe in that language. It communicates that I'm trying to conform them into my image. But when I spend time with other people, Jesus disciples me and he disciples us. And I'm not saying that I'm against that 
idea of discipling others, but just for me personally, my conviction is when I am with other people, we are being discipled together. And that happens because of what we've been doing apart from one another and then coming to each other and talking about that and the Holy Spirit refining our conversations and our thoughts. And if you and I aren't doing that, if you're not doing that in some form or fashion, if you don't have people in your life whom you can sit around in a circle with and and talk about scripture with, I'd encourage you to find a way here at Centers to do that because there are so many ways to do that and it's so important and impactful. Uh, we see this modeled in scripture. I didn't get to it first, sir, so I'm going to try and fly through it here and then we'll be done. Remember how at the beginning we quote from 2 Timothy chapter 3? It's so important to realize that happens when the context of real life and relationships and a dialogue. Look at how Paul writes to Timothy. It says in verse 3 of chapter 1, I'm grateful to God whom I worship with a clear conscience as my ancestors did when I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure lives in you. Catch this. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. And then later on in verse 10 of chapter 3, Paul writes, Now you've observed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and my sufferings, the things that happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Indeed, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But wicked people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving others and being deceived. But as for you... Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scriptures inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. You see the dialogue between Paul and Timothy there? The so all scriptures God breathed doesn't, it's just not like thrown out there as something to, to memorize or a rule. No, no. There is real relationship here. And there is concern from Paul to Timothy, a young pastor, because I don't know if you saw it contextually, he's flaming out. The kid's struggling. Okay, we don't know what it is that's causing Timothy to get to this point where he is perhaps ready to be apart from ministry, but Paul is writing to remind him, dude, do not give up. Don't give up. Here's the last point. When we are devoted to Scripture, our hearts are committed to the ministry of reconciliation. And I am so convinced that Paul to Timothy knew that there was so much more at stake than just one person giving up on ministry. There's a world beyond each and every single one of us. And we are called to be a part of this ministry of reconciliation. In other words, you and I don't just get to have our broken lives redeemed and healed so that we can have great stories where we testify to God's goodness. If it ended there, it would be a sad ending. There are people all around us, neighbors, co-workers, teammates, 
peers, strangers who have yet to be confronted with the amazing love and grace and forgiveness of God. And he can meet every single one of us where we are. But if we ourselves do not go from where we've been and take the truth of the message and what we find here, what hope does this world have? How is God going to accomplish his work in this world if we, the creatures of what he's given us, this new creation, if you and I do not go from our place and steward our story and this truth and go and share and be. So here's my hope and prayer for every single one of us. Not that you would just read this more. It'd be really easy to say, go home and read your Bible, which is so important. I hope that this week you go and you approach Scripture differently and that you actually spend time here. But really, what I'm asking us to consider is how our devotion to Scripture would do as this series is about. Bring us to a wholehearted devotion to God, which would then in turn change how we lived in this world. Let's pray.